Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis. Please don't forget there's a donate button at the top of the webpage. In the documentary series, The Reagans, Grover Norquist, one of the leaders of the we don't want to pay any taxes movement, says... So you want to abolish government? No, I don't want to abolish government. I want to make it so small you could drag it into the bathroom and drown it in the bathtub. That's small. Small as a bathtub, okay? Very small. The leadership that I envision would be to take the lead in getting government off the backs of the people of the United States and turning you loose to do what you can do so well. Here's a clip from near the end of part three of the Reagans. One of Reagan's geniuses was to convince people to vote against their own self-interest. The notion that if you supported Reaganomics, you would have a better life when it wasn't true, but you convinced people to do it. Reagan realized something a lot of politicians were always afraid to admit. A lot of Americans are just selfish. And the best way to destroy a program is not just to tell people that it's inefficient, it's to tell them that they have to share it with somebody, especially if that means black and brown people in America. Now joining me to continue our discussion about his Showtime documentary series, The Reagans, is Matt Trinauer, who's also the filmmaker of Valentino, The Last Emperor, which was shortlisted for an Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature, and Where's My Roy Kahn, another must-see if you want to understand the political forces that gave us Donald Trump. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thank you. So Reagan campaigns for smaller government, and one of the messages of smaller government is you're going to have tax cuts and more money in your pocket and all of this. And while, yeah, there, there was smaller government when it comes to social programs, there was a big expansion of government when it comes to militarization. And, the, and this contradiction between supposed smaller government and expansion of militarization is just one of the big, complete, what can I say, mind fucks that, that people get their head around. It, it, it creates this know, completely false consciousness about how the world works. So talk a bit about that contradiction between small government and big military and how he sells this to people. Well, Reagan was sent to Washington to do the bidding of a particular constituency. And that constituency was uh, a group of oligarchs. Uh, he specifically came from California, where there was a lot of aerospace and oil industry people uh, whom he had become very close with. In fact, they really invented his political career. They were nicknamed the Kitchen Cabinet, and uh, a big portion of them were for, from those sectors of the economy. And uh, they were also uh, vehemently for low taxes, uh, but they were for uh, also great government largesse when it came to building defense systems, uh, because that was the business that they were in. So the, the worldview of the Republican Party, and specifically the rising right-wing Republican Party, uh, which then adopted supply-side economics as its political theory, uh, was eventually embodied by Reagan. And when he got elected, he did what he said he was going to do, which was to attempt to defund the parts of the government that were generous to uh, the poor and the middle class, uh, but to give a blank check to the Pentagon, basically. And uh, that's a huge contradiction. He really wasn't for small government. He was only for small government if it was to benefit uh, essentially black and brown people in this country. And along the way, he screwed over a lot of uh, white middle class and lower middle class voters. But in order to get him into his political tent, he plied them with uh, dog whistle racism. Uh, and that was one way that he lured them into voting against their own self-interest. Uh, of course, walking around talking about tax cuts uh, was a good way to fool people who thought that they might benefit from the tax cuts as well. If they read the fine print, they would find out that not so much. Uh, the tax cuts really were um, really heavily skewed to the upper income brackets. And we've really never um, reversed those tax cuts. So uh, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to make this series is that uh, the Reagan 80s 
set America on a what seemingly inexorable path to becoming a much more unfair and oligarchic uh, country. And uh, you see in uh, Trumpism, uh, people voting against their own self-interest to the umpteenth power. And Trump, of course, sheds the dog whistle racism and uses the foghorn racism and all becomes more overt. But you can see the origins of this strategy uh, becoming uh, successful under Reagan, which is why the Republican Party became so addicted to them, because Reagan showed that it could work with the right front man. Uh, I don't think that that Republican Party ever could have envisioned someone as vulgar and crass as a Donald Trump taking over, but uh, uh, these are the lessons that uh, we had to learn. I, you know, we've talked before in previous conversation about the entertainer as president and the entertainer as politician, of course, Reagan really did set the precedent for that. Uh, the culture, I think, is uh, in a state of uh, entropy and great unraveling and devolving. So it makes sense that 20 years into the 21st century, a failing reality TV star would assume the presidency, where at the end of the 20th century, a failed movie star and fading TV star assumed the uh, American presidency. It was just commensurate with the, the media landscape of the particular moment. Uh, in, the, in an earlier session of our interviews, we talked about that quote. I think you said it was from a Gary Wills about Reagan knew how to play to the American psyche because he comes from within it himself. How much of that psyche is rooted in the Cold War, in McCarthyism and the, that whole outlook? Uh, and how much is the success of Reaganism uh, was the soil tilled for that in the Cold War? Yeah, I mean, Reagan was a quintessential Cold War figure uh, even before his political career as head of the Screen Actors Guild. He secretly named names and got on J. Edgar Hoover's good side. You know, the head of the Screen Actors Guild was uh, very relevant to the director of the FBI because Hollywood was an essential uh, element of the propaganda uh, machine and uh, was a kind of beacon of Americanism and a very powerful uh, force in all levels of communication that could be harnessed for propaganda. It was very nakedly in World War II and very effectively. But after the Second World War, uh, when America, uh, the United States, needed a uh, common enemy to keep the game going, and the game I'm referring to is the military-industrial complex, uh, the designated other or enemy uh, without and then within to create a culture of uh, scare, which became known as the Red Scare, uh, was communism. And Reagan, uh, while, while he was kind of moving to the right, uh, signed up for um, the Red Scare. And he, he played his testimony before the House Un-Americans Act, uh, the House Un-American Activities Committee uh, really cleverly. Uh, he was head of SAG. He, as I said, named names privately so he didn't have to tarnish his reputation and seem like a bad guy. He was an expert at playing the good guy on screen and he knew how to play it off screen as well. So he uh, gave the names as an FBI informant. Uh, I think T10 was his FBI code name. And then he gave testimony which was rather bland, uh, pretty winning, I have to say, if you look at the film of it. He, he seems kind of like a stand-up guy who's trying to do his best to uh, defend his industry, but also talk about how under his watch, communism didn't get a toehold in there, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So he comes through the McCarthy period uh, really better than most. And uh, that, as his political career and interest in politics starts to mount and kind of meet an emerging political career later in the, uh, the 1960s uh, sets a tone that he, he never really breaks. He's he uh, buys into the Cold War notion that the Soviet Union is, as he later called it famously, an evil empire. He didn't really coin that phrase or, or you know, take up one of his speechwriters' uh, coinages until the 80s. but. That's how, he, uh, that's how he emoted and acted about it. And uh, that appealed to the emerging hard right of the party and the Goldwater wing, of which he was um, a soldier. 
And then when he emerged as a politician, again, uh, as the vessel of these California industrialists who were also crazily anti-communist. In, in the last interview we did, we talked a lot about Reagan's racism, the dog whistles, making the white working class feel great again, <laughs> which is more or less what that slogan, Make America Great Again, is about, which is, it was Reagan's. Um, but, but in fact, his real assault was actually on the white working class. You know, it comes at a time of globalization when the, the real uh, American companies are really starting to produce overseas, particularly they're starting to move to China, they're to Mexico. Uh, the computerization is making global supply chains so much more efficient and do, uh, workable, the Walmart model and so on. Um, and Reagan launches this very public attack on air traffic controllers. So it's, it's really his targets actually unions whose majority members are white workers. Yeah, so he plies them with racism and gets them on his side, more or less, that was uh, something that he was pioneering with uh, dog whistle racism. He was the only president of a union to then go on to be president of the United States. But one irony about Reagan is that he was always on the side of management. Even when he was the head of a union, he was frequently cutting sweetheart deals with uh, his former agents, or I think they were still currently his agents, who were also movie producers. Uh, with MCA and Universal. So he was cutting sweetheart deals for management when he was head of a, a labor union. So he wasn't really your run-of-the-mill, uh, typical uh, head of a labor union. And indeed, he fired all the air traffic controllers in his first, I think, couple months as president. It was shocking. Uh, but it was really sending a signal that uh, he was going to try to dismantle the union movement, which was another part of the New Deal uh, that he would have wanted to have seen and did kind of uh, diminish uh, in his mission to undo uh, much of the New Deal and much of the Great Society. Well, how does well after he goes after the air traffic controllers and everybody takes this as a real shot at the union movement as such, but to a large extent, he's still able to maintain support amongst white workers. Interesting, his tactic. Uh, for going against the labor union, specifically the air traffic controllers. He fired them. It was a draconian thing. If you see the uh, film that we have, uh, it's a, truly a devastation uh, to the workers. But at the same time, he sent out this kind of gunslinging symbol, uh, which did very well for his image. This was the era where kind of John Wayne, shoot from the hip, populism uh, merged with emerging Reaganism and that type of um, let's be tough, take no prisoners uh, imagery and image makings ended up serving him very well. I think anyone who had a heart uh, who he would probably call bleeding heart liberals, or today we would call, you know, still libs, I guess, or snowflakes, uh, would have looked really negatively on this. But it worked for uh, that sort of um, rugged individualist uh, myth that Americans really want to believe in, when, of course, um, most people on so-called welfare in the United States have always been white and always been white, lower, lower middle class, hoping to move up into the middle class, which is what the social safety net often achieved for them. But uh, there's a hard, there's a very difficult process for some reason in this country for people to understand that um, welfare is uh, benefiting them if they're white. And I think that because they've become the victim of politicians such as Reagan who demagogue the issue and say that they have to share these programs with black and brown people and it just absolutely scrambles everyone's brain and uh, they follow the lead of the demagogue on that. It came to a um, extraordinary manifestation in the Obama 
administration when he was trying to get Obamacare off the ground and the Tea Party was rising and the slogan became, get the government's hands off of my Medicare, which is an utterly nonsensical statement, but people were saying it with a straight face. And I think that encapsulates the syndrome that a lot of Americans fell prey to. And I would think that, I think that Reagan really pushed them into that kind of misunderstanding and, and self, uh, self-inflicted harm. Reagan and, and whoever the brain trust behind Reagan were, were very adept at taking, um, taking advantage of splits in the working class. So the obvious is race. But there's another split that doesn't get talked about very much. That is the minority of workers were in unions and the majority of workers were not doing anywhere near as well as unionized workers. And amongst many non-unionized workers, tremendous resentment of unionized workers. And then particularly at that time when jobs are starting to go offshore, the, the lie that was told to uh, non-unionized workers is that it's the high wages of unionized workers that's forcing the jobs out of the country. So Reagan, I think, in firing the air traffic controllers and going after unions was actually appealing to a very false premise, but a lot of workers had bought into it, that blame this all on, you know, jobs are going to Asia because of these unionized guys and I'm standing up to the unions by firing the air traffic controllers because the unionized workers are screwing you. And the thing that's interesting about it is there's some truth to it in this way. Some of the unionized workers of the bigger unions, like auto workers, had, for example, wonderful health care plans and they leadership of those unions, and to some extent the membership, didn't give a shit about all the workers that had no health care plan at all. And, and because the, these unions were so only concerned about their own members and would not, for example, care about health care in terms of the whole society, it built up tremendous resentment. Uh, and it's not the only factor. So I, I think you know, it's another way Reagan was able to play on these splits. Um, and, and that the vision continues. There was a big opening there for him. And also the press didn't cover unions. So there was very little out there to help explain to people exactly what was happening because it was a very unsexy beat and journalism really ignored it. And uh, with the rise of TV news and less in-depth reporting, uh, which is something we haven't talked about and I, I will actually launch into in a second here, uh, it got short shrift. But Reagan's presidency to that point uh, coincided with a big change in the structure of television news. Television news had been much more serious and segments were longer. It was personified by Cronkite and Hunt Huntley and Brinkley who were very serious journalists in the mold of Edward R. Murrow. Everyone patterned themselves on, on that. They were really wire service reporters who, who were real reporters. Uh, network news became more corporatized and more bottom line oriented in the late 70s and into the early 80s especially. And uh, CBS in particular, uh, which was owned by William Paley and was run as a sort of boutique Tiffany network fiefdom that really more than certainly now uh, believed in the public trust of networks and especially network news, abandoned all that. It was sold to another corporation. It was sold to um, Lowe's Corporation. And uh, the bottom line crept in and the news division's uh, priorities were changed. They became more like local news. They in fact hired local news chiefs to run the network news divisions. And the uh, storytelling became truncated and much more sensationalized and much more focused on human interest stories. Reagan benefited from that enormously because he was very sophisticated about communications. Mike Deaver, his staff member who was in charge of that and also Nancy Reagan understood how to sell him as a kind of 
human interest story at all times. And the, the networks, as Leslie Stahl says, uh, she was at CBS at the time that this all started happening. And she, in fact, says her bosses began to take negativity out of her stories because uh, Reagan's popularity ratings were high and they felt that his popularity would translate into high ratings for their uh, TV news shows and therefore their prime time <clears throat> schedule because that the TV news led into prime time. So that sort of softer news approach <clears throat> and uh, less serious news approach and more susceptible news division to the charms of a celebrity president helped him enormously and hurt serious causes like unionism because they just didn't get the coverage that they might once have got. The other sleight of hand, which Reagan was adept at, and I guess he wasn't the first, but I, without doubt, I think he was the most successful up until that point, was big government bad, any government to some extent bad, but big business good, that people could get their heads around that big corporations were good and only government was in their way. And this whole idea that government at least was some democratic break on corporations and big business, that in fact, it was the opposite. It was a break for the bad, not for the good. So even regulations to do with like, uh, you know, seatbelts were bad or you name it. Uh, how do you understand the psyche? That, 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 that buys this uh, big government bad, big corporations good. Like I can get big corporations and government bad. I can get, yes, I can see how corporations use government against small business. No, no, it's just governments are attacking small business, not corporations making them do it. Like this link between the corporate control of government. This is why I think the liberal argument often didn't work when talking to people because it would kind of just defend government without really exposing the link between how corporations do use government against workers and small businesses and such. I mean, Reagan's the personification of welfare for the rich, <laughs> welfare for people like himself uh, in the form of tax breaks. And in, in the case of the Reagans, uh, free luxury housing uh, gifted to them by General Electric in the 1950s when he was a corporate shill for them and then into kind of luxury public housing in the form of special governor's mansions that were nicer than the normal governor's mansions that Nancy Reagan refused to live in. Uh, so they're sort of symbolic uh, of that. But Reagan himself was constantly selling this. This was part of his mission, and he was very good at it, actually, where he would pluck from Reader's Digest and Human Events and other kind of right-wing uh, Republican uh, magazines these anecdotes about all of the hidden taxes that we ended up paying. And he was a one-man propaganda unit, unit for that. He does an appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson uh, between the governorship and the run for the, the ultimately successful run for the presidency. And Carson was a big liberal, but uh, his producer was a big Republican in front of Reagan, so Reagan gets on the show. Carson's very polite, and Reagan just does this sort of like bland uh, monologue uh, about Johnny, you know, um, how many hidden taxes are in that suit of clothes you're wearing right now? And then he talks about there's a thread tax and the buttonhole tax and the lining and the glue tax. And he has this incredible way of doing a homily about how the government's ripping you off when you all you want to do is just buy a brown suit. And um, that had a tremendous appeal. You know, there's a state senator in Michigan, and he just found out the other day they got a $93,000 study on whether chitlins are bad for you. And, and he said that as a fourth generation chitlin eater, he figured that he could tell you how for 93 cents you could find out the answer to that. You no, know, we laugh at those things, but they do happen, I guess. Oh, listen, there, you, you had some beauties and there's some others. What would you say if I told you about one, a study in which this was called the, um, the uh, demography of happiness? And in this study, the government found out that uh, young people are happier than old people. <laughs> and uh, they found out that people that earn more are happier than people that earn less. 
And they found out that well people are happier than sick people. That's good. Well, that's uh, this was $249,000 to find out it's better to be rich, young, and healthy than old, poor, and sick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And obviously his audience, I, I, I don't know, was Carson in New York or L.A. at that time? LA. Like, L.A. It's a very liberal audience, you can tell. And Reagan is so damn charming, and his smile is so winning, that even though everything he's saying is just like the opposite of what these people in the audience believe, most of them, they wind up kind of being won over to him. Yes, well, you know, he had an art which was keeping it simple, and that is a good art form for a politician. I mean, these are the things that you can't take away from him if you want to be successful in politics in the uh, media age. You need to be good on television, and now we know you need to be good at social media. And he was particularly good at being relatable, and he was a great simplifier. Franklin Roosevelt was a great simplifier as well on the radio. I mean, there are these wonderful accounts of uh, Judge Rosenman, the speechwriter, and Harry Hopkins bringing him drafts uh, late at night in his yellow, or in the Oval Study of the White House, not the Oval Office. He would frequently work in the Oval Study and work late. And he would send them back and say, you know, it needs to be much more simple. Or he would edit it himself. And Reagan was very good at that. And he indeed did annotate and add things to his own speeches to make it more simple and relatable. But these slogans he came up with, which are, some of them are immortal, which is uh, government is not the uh, solution to our problems. Government is the problem. That was a, a dog whistle in a way that was um, code for more money in your pocket. And more money in your pocket was a really powerful message for people who felt like they were being squeezed, or it was also a kind of um, chess move slogan that got you to the dog whistle slogan, which is there are welfare queens who are taking up all this government money that could actually be going to you, or we could give you a tax cut with this money that these young bucks are using to buy T-bone steaks with, uh, with food stamps. So this whole kind of uh, construct of the Amer of the imagination that he's putting out there, uh, talking about the evils of government, which is really preying on the prejudices of people who are either innately racist because they were Southerners who were raised to be racist and have this set of beliefs, or people who were susceptible to that type of uh, racist political rhetoric. And uh, again, it worked which is why Reagan is a perpetual hero uh, to the right and the Republican Party, because he really knew how to win. Not, not only the right. I mean, when he died, Democrats were falling all over each other to praise him. Yes, because he was a winner. Uh, and he, um, you know, he never lost an election, really. I mean, he lost a couple uh, primary battles to uh, get the nomination. But he, when he was directly on the ballot, uh, he never lost. And uh, the the uh, Democrats, I remember I interviewed Horace Busby, who was one of LBJ's main advisors, and this was on the eve of the Clinton election. It was one of the first articles I ever wrote, actually. I was talking to Busby, who was a great Texas character, and I said, uh, do you think Clinton will win? He said, no, another Democrat will never win. The Democrats will never win another election. What he didn't count on was that Clinton, in his so-called triangulation, would adopt a lot of the uh, Reagan-esque uh, tactics of uh, kind of poo-pooing government. And Clinton himself says that the era of big government is over, and I believe his first inaugural, uh, which was a way of getting back those so-called Reagan Democrats who really liked that message. So he used it as a way to get into office and then um, Certainly, um, Bill Clinton was a lot more liberal than Ronald Reagan, uh, and uh, I think did, did some good, but uh, he, he got in there by adopting some of the tricks that Reagan had shown were successful. Well, some of his policies weren't all that far from Reagan. Right. Uh, financial deregulation, mass incarceration, welfare reform. I mean, he, he built on a lot of the same policies Reagan uh, had implemented himself. Absolutely. They were reskinned and kind of relabeled, and uh, they did. He had, uh, I believe, you, if you read the Woodward book about the, uh, the Clinton economic policy from the first two years, uh, it's very clear that he's uh, 
adopting a Republican economic policy, and uh, his Secretary of the Treasury or head of Economic Council's advisors was the head of Goldman Sachs, Bob Rubin at the time, who was normally a Democrat, but still a, a big Wall Street guy, and uh, they were uh, they had those interests as well. Um, the, this is part of the knock-on effect of um, of Reaganism. And the Times. You know, it's, it's a time where the financial sector is exploding and its political power is exploding. And that was due to Reagan, though. I mean, this was uh, all of that deregulation uh, started to get sown in, in the 1980s. And uh, the first uh, great symptom of the corruption of it was the savings and loan scandal. And uh, Reagan's deregulation of that industry led directly to that. Uh, you talked a little bit about media. You know, these days with Trump, uh, there was a, a media whose business model was defending Trump and the other business model attacking Trump. Uh, during the Reagan years, what was the, what was the media like? Did they lay a glove on him? They really didn't. The TV news uh, production at that time, the news networks, uh, were undergoing an enormous shift. And uh, cable news started in the first year of the Reagan presidency, CNN went on the air. So you suddenly had a uh, nascent 24-hour news cycle, which they adopted to relatively well. It was sort of a slow buildup. Um, but Leslie Stahl, again, uh, talks about being a puddle on the floor and all of her colleagues who were uh, pretty tough on Jimmy Carter and uh, were dogged, good reporters, uh, she admits were very seduced by Reagan's charm at the podium. And again, this is another effective thing that they did, uh, which led Reagan, I think, into a great deal of trouble. He was not really uh, shy about admitting that he was a front man. His, aptitude and interest in the details of policy was non-existent. He had a set of beliefs, a framework of beliefs that he was unshakable from. And anything that fell outside that belief system really was not of interest to him. And there are a whole lot of things that presidents have to deal with that are outside of a um, low tax, low deregulation, big uh, spending on defense, Soviet Union bad, uh, political belief system, which was like pretty much the extent of it. Uh, now, that was great for politics, but for governing, not so good. Uh, and the press, again, because the substance, newspapers were declining then, the substance of TV news was declining. The great commentators, actually, like Eric Severide, to some extent, David Brinkley, who had been a very cynical commentator on the Washington scene, was losing his influence at that time. Uh, those voices were really fading. And uh, what was taking over was happy talk news and soft feature reporting. So when Reagan would go be photographed passing sandbags to shore up a levee on, a, on the Mississippi near his hometown because the town had flooded, that was the story on the news. Uh, nothing about the farm bill and how he might have been screwing up for farmers or certainly nothing in depth about unions. Uh, so it was a very felicitous time for him and they knew how to play the game very well. So you have to give credit where it's due. I mean, the modern communication strategies of the White House were pretty much invented in the, in the Reagan period. And he really showed that he was kind of like a master of ceremonies, which curiously he played in a lot of movies. So there, that's, there's that kind of like osmosis between his movie persona and his persona as the man in the Oval Office. And uh, that's enough to get by on in this country. Now, of course, you can draw the direct parallel to someone who plays a successful uh, executive of a huge, wonderful conglomerate uh, that's the best we've ever seen, uh, who is not that at all. Of course, I'm talking about Trump. Uh, perfectly that fallacy, that unreality is perfectly acceptable to at least 40% of the American voting public, and they're willing to go with it. So Reagan also proved that that was uh, a possibility. 
in the film, uh, it, more and more as the series unfolds, the figure of Nancy Reagan looms larger. Um, she comes, I learned, from a very right-wing, I learned in your series, I guess other people knew it, I don't know. She comes from a very right-wing family. Her father's a real, I don't know if he was a John Bircher, but a real right-winger. Um, how important is she in running the affairs of the nation? And, and she seems even more, you know, she'll play this dutiful wife externally, but she seems almost even more committed ideologically in terms of right-wing thinking. Uh, she comes from a family where her stepfather was very hard right. Uh, curiously, he was pro-choice. He was a brain surgeon, and he took a kind of medical view of uh, abortion, which, I mean, he was a kind of fading when Roe v. Wade happened. But Reagan had a, by the way, an abortion uh, legislation when he was governor of California, and he actually supported it. He said reluctantly thereafter, but it shows you how all the politics in the United States has changed since the 70s when uh, a Republican, even a right-wing Republican, could kind of survive having a, a pro-choice stance. He, he changed his tune on that. It's pretty clear, though, by the way, that Nancy Reagan was kind of pro-choice. She worshipped her stepfather. He was pro-choice, so it's more than likely she wasn't. This is part of the uh, incipient hypocrisy of the Reagans is that they often expressed things that as beliefs that weren't their true beliefs to uh, to get the political gain out of them. Uh, Nancy Reagan's right wing household and her beloved father and also mother who was probably pretty right wing as well, uh, Edith Luckett Davis, uh, were an influence on her. And when Reagan married her in uh, the late 40s, or they started dating in the late 40s, might have married in 1950, I think. Uh, he started to move progressively harder uh, right. And uh, there was a big influence there. Uh, whether she had a coherent policy uh, point of view, I think is more up for grabs. Later on, uh, when they ascend to the presidency, uh, she takes on a central role at first as the, um, they called her the personnel director uh, because she was truly in charge of staffing and all of her actions to protect Reagan uh, from making mistakes and uh, putting his foot in his mouth and uh, he couldn't fire anyone. He was famously, he was, he was affable, so he hated to have conflict and refused to fire people, but she was not afraid to fire people. So she would step in and do that, or she would like kneecap them. Ed Rollins, who was a political director, uses that uh, term, take them out of the knees. Uh, so it's very powerful. And then in the presidency, uh, there was definitely an increasing advisory capacity. And certainly in the second term, when his mental status starts to decline, his own son, Ron Reagan Jr., uh, talks about that in the series. Uh, Nancy Reagan started to take over and really uh, have much more of a hand in policy, calling cabinet secretaries directly, calling shots, uh, big hand in uh, pushing him into uh, reaching out uh, and accepting Gorbachev's reach out to him. Uh, he was the hawk's hawk before, and uh, she, before he did, saw the possibilities of doing a kind of image reboot where the pro-nuclear war, which he was, <laughs> believe it or not, people were in the 60s and 70s, politician became a kind of anti-nuke uh, peace negotiator because her big agenda was that he would get the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, Gorbachev ended up getting the Nobel Peace Prize and Ronald Reagan did not, which I'm sure Nancy Reagan was furious about. Uh, but uh, she was a great publicist for her husband and a great a political advisor along those lines. And Some people suggest near the end she's effectively the president. Do, I think do, that's do, true. I think that he was flailing. He had a wrong contra. He was depressed. He was in the early stages of dementia. He, I think, had gotten in way over his head. 
He was uh, incredibly inattentive, as we've discussed, and uh, the Iran-Contra scandal was a byproduct of that, that he didn't really know what he was signing a lot of the times, and it had that laissez-faire uh, method had served him well because he had been well enough protected, but this was something that was too deep for him to dig out of, and Nancy Reagan did take the reins. Now, the, another aspect of this that we shed some new light on that is rather unbelievable, but uh, true, is that uh, both Reagans were obsessed with astrology, and it's gotten laughed off uh, frequently as, oh, this cute little joke or something weird about the Reagans, footnote. But no, uh, the Reagans, both of them, were obsessed with astrology from the 40s down, Ronald Reagan as well. Yeah, you've got some amazing scenes in the, in the series about this. Well, we talked to one of Nancy's astrologers later, Joan Quigley, who not only was getting into scheduling with Nancy Reagan, which Nancy Reagan was intimately involved in, the very power, like scheduling a president is among the most powerful responsibilities. I mean, that's deeply involved in the political uh, program of, of a White House, and uh, Nancy Reagan was absolutely overseeing all of that. She sounds more like a chief of staff than uh, I think she was a first lady. chief of staff. I mean, there was a Troika chief of staff uh, system in the first term, which was Baker, who was uh, preeminent, Deaver, and Meese. But that power sharing uh, scenario gave her a lot of room to maneuver and manipulate. And Mike Deaver was her sort of spy on the scene. And Jim Baker, uh, whom we interview, uh, understood that in order to succeed, he needed to charm Nancy. And Jim Baker had all of the great attributes to charm Nancy Reagan. He was wealthy, good looking, you know, distinguished man who wore decent suits and was, you know, very smooth and uh, wonderful gossip and played her like a fiddle. Uh, and I think she in turn played him like a fiddle. So uh, she that's how she exerted her power. It became much more uh, overt in the second term where um, Baker had swapped jobs with uh, Don Regan, who had been treasury secretary and then became chief of staff. That's who Nancy Reagan took out at the knees because uh, there was a, a unicameral uh, chief of staff then, and he clashed with Nancy Reagan and she destroyed him. Uh, and then more or less took over because they had weak chiefs of staff after that, Howard Baker. And then there was a kind of uh, caretaker figure um, at the at the end of the administration. It's his son's Ron, Ronald, Ronnie or something, right? Ron Jr. Ron Jr. OK, so Ron Jr. shows up in the series quite often. He's a, he sounds like a very progressive voice. I can imagine he might even have supported a Bernie Sanders these days. My father was kind of a strange fellow to be president of the United States. There's nothing like being in the saddle all day. Um, talk about your relationship interviewing him and, and, and how does he, uh, you know, I guess it's not the first time uh, a child ends up with opposite polar politics to the parents, but he seems quite opposite. Yeah, I think what well, he says in his own memoir that he would have voted for Walter Mondale in 84 if uh, Reagan hadn't been his father. So I think we, we know where his political sympathies lie. Patty Davis was sort of like a, a parallel Jane Fonda figure, uh, always kind of undercutting her parents throughout the 80s and the 90s. Uh, Ron Jr. was more circumspect, but I think... It's been now long enough since his mother has left us that uh, he felt much more free to speak his mind and talk about the uh, failures of his uh, parents' political belief system and their policies. He's very overt about it. We had a six-plus-hour interview, and uh, he was extraordinary, I thought. I, I think his the way he's dealt with First of all, being the son of people like that, which I don't think can be easy. Um, I think his father was a, uh, he writes himself, his father was a very distant figure. His mother, I think, was uh, clearly difficult and probably a very difficult mother. Patty Davis has revealed a lot of that in her memoirs. Uh, and I think he's come to terms with it, but his coherent uh, speeches about, um, 
what created the politician Ronald Reagan as well as the father Ronald Reagan are, are really fascinating and I think uh, are very, uh, very intelligent and quite revealing. Have, have you thought of releasing the whole interview in some way? Uh, yeah, we, we, if we can, if we can do that, We'd, I'd love to do that. I think be an, an interesting archive. One thing he didn't get into was astrology. Though I, I would add, astrology is so important that when Nancy uh, decides to push Reagan toward Gorbachev, uh, she relies on the astrologer to advise her about that. And the astrologer did Gorbachev's chart. And a lot of the symmetry was planned according to the uh, matching of Ronald Reagan's chart with Mikhail Gorbachev's chart. And this, this is no joke. Uh, so uh, in a way, all to the good, but it's an incredibly bizarre circumstance where this person, Reagan, who was impossibly hawkish, I mean, terrifyingly hawkish, really, at a time when the Cold War was at its hottest, and then he made it even hotter when he got into office and was such a devotee of propping up the military industrial complex, decides for reasons um, uh, having to do with legacy, image, and astrology to do this almost perverse reaching out and pivot uh, with Nancy Reagan very much fanning the flames of that is, is, has to be one of the most bizarre and high stakes uh, moments in the history of world of the world did you did did you ever get a sense of whether the astrologer uh really did those charts or she just wanted them to get together so the world wouldn't blow up oh no i think she really did them and i think the astrologer was a rather right-wing republican actually i don't mm. think i think that she she must have been yeah. she must have had those sentiments I, I think she understood that world peace was probably a good thing uh and there was a big opportunity here. You know, there was a big opportunity. And well, in, in the next segment of the interview, because we got one more to go, uh, let, we'll be talking about the whole summit with Gorbachev and Star Wars and, and, and all of that. So, so, so we won't get into all of that more now. Um, but just more sort of on the personal note, uh, you know, with, with the two kids, uh, at least politically estranged. Were they estranged other than politically? Did they actually tune out of from their parents? Both Nancy Reagan and Patty Davis write about this extensively, actually. Nancy Reagan wrote a rather bitter memoir called My Turn. Uh, it's, it might be, the it must be, <laughs> the most score-settling, bitter First Lady memoir in, in history. And she... Basically, she goes after Don Regan because Don Regan had written a memoir where he uh, outed the astrology. And uh, you hear Helen Thomas questioning Reagan about um, Nancy being a dragon lady uh, in the Oval Office. And Reagan gets very offended. He, he's very chivalric and defends Nancy and says that the, the idea of her being a dragon lady and running the White House is absolutely absurd. <laughs> No, it's not. But anyway, he, he seemed noble and chivalric. But so my turn is her response to Don Regan's memoir. And she writes very openly about her, uh, frankly, terrible relationship with Patty. Uh, Ron Jr. was much closer to his parents. He writes about them in his memoir, which is called My Father at 100, which is a, an excellent book where he retraces a lot of Regan's steps in uh, Dixon, Illinois, on the banks of the Mississippi and the Rock River, where Reagan was a lifeguard. And the myth of Reagan was born because Reagan himself was midwife to the myth. And from this strangely early age, starts self-mythologizing. And Ron Jr. is particularly good at debunking the uh, myth-making of his father, which, which snowballed over the years and, and, you know, became enormous when he was in Hollywood and a movie star. And was aided and abetted by the publicity department of Warner Brothers and the gossip columnist Luello Parsons, who was from Dixon, Illinois, and took him up as a special project. Well, Ron Jr. 
uh, analyzes all of this and does a very sophisticated retelling of his father's story through the detective work that he did. And he presents all of that uh, in the series. And I give him enormous credit. It's, 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 it's important scholarly work, I would even go so far as to say. And myth-making and symbol-making is the art of Reagan. Now, Gary Wills, who writes about life on the Mississippi, uh, as it were, uh, for young Ronald Reagan does a very sophisticated and scholarly analysis of, of this as well, 20 years before, 30 years before even Ron Jr. gets at it. And those two books taken together, I think, would be a wonderful primer for anyone uh, looking for uh, reading material as a way into understanding the real Reagan. Well, let me say, watching your series is also an important way to understand the real Reagan. And let me, I don't know whether Showtime's going to like what I'm about to say or not, but even if you got to sign up for one month, go get on the, get the one month and watch it. And, and then you can decide if you want to stay or not. But it, this, is a, uh, this is a series people should watch. All right, so Matt and I are going to do one more uh, in, in the next little while where we'll get more into the whole Gorbachev meeting and some other, other those kinds of questions. Uh, for now, thanks for joining us, Matt. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. And please don't forget, there's a donate button at the top of the webpage.